Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. On today's show, we have a biochemist, author, and VP of the uh, Old Earth Creationist Organization, uh, Reasons to Believe. In 1999, he left his position in R&D at a Fortune 500 company to join RTV. He was determined to share what he believes to be the powerful scientific evidence for God's existence and the uh, the reliability of the Bible. His books include Human 2.0, Thinking About Evolution, and Fit for a Purpose, uh, Dr. Fazal Rana, welcome to the show. Uh, John, thanks for having me. It's uh, a pleasure to meet you and to spend some time with you. Absolutely, I've been. I've been. Uh, full disclosure: I've been nervous uh, <laughs> about approaching this topic. Um, you know, I'm not a scientist, uh, and to this day, I've never been like formally taught evolution in any kind of uh, academic setting. And so I wouldn't say I'm qualified to defend it. So, I, I, you know, you won't hear a lot of defending evolution from me, probably. But I feel fairly comfortable with the basics of uh, intelligent design and creationism arguments. So so hopefully we can have like a very productive and friendly discussion about these concepts. Uh, but before we do that, I'd like to get to know you for you a little bit more. Um, I asked this question to a lot of guests. How did you relate to Christianity or religion the first 18 years of your life? Yeah, well, um, I I guess I didn't relate much at all to Christianity, uh, you know, my first 18 years uh, uh, on this earth. Um, I grew up in a, a bit of an unusual home. My my father was from India, and he was a, a Muslim. He was a, a nuclear physicist. He worked in R&D and also was a college professor uh, and was devout as a Muslim. My mom came from a Catholic background, but she was a non-practicing uh, Catholic when my mother and father met and married. And so, growing up uh, in in you know in our household, uh, the religious system that we were, uh, my brother and I were most exposed to was was Islam because of my father. Uh, my mom's parents, my grandparents, were devout Catholics. So when we would visit them or they would visit us, we would go to Catholic church. So I had some exposure to Catholicism. But again, the the dominant religious system I was exposed to was Islam and even dabbled a bit in it when I was a teenager. I uh, recited the Shahada, which you know says that Allah is the one true God and Muhammad is his one true prophet, and began to read from English translations of the Quran. And I learned how to pray from my father. But after, you know, a year and a half, two years, I just kind of lost interest in in Islam and really settled into a position probably that would be best described as agnosticism. Uh, and that's kind of the view that I held when I went off to college. So, um, you know, uh, really no genuine exposure to Christianity at all uh, growing up. Definitely. And even Catholicism is certainly different than any kind of uh, evangelical Christianity. So um, 
that's 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 an interesting picture to to paint. And so you say your your dad was a nuclear physicist. So were you always kind of interested in science? Uh, not really. Uh, you know, when I was uh, growing up, it was my interest was uh, at least in my teenage years was uh, rock music, sports, and girls. You know, that's what what really interested me. I I was a, a good student, and so I excelled in math and science courses, but. Uh, I wasn't one of those kids that was a precocious scientist from the very beginnings of my life. Um, in fact, uh, when it was time to go to college, I had no idea really what I wanted to do. And my father being, you know, uh, uh, a, a strong, uh, domineering Indian father insisted that I uh, enroll in a, in a pre-med program to become a doctor. And I thought, well, uh, I'm good in math and science, so why not? And so that was really my... Uh, you know, my, the decision-making that went into my college major. But it was really, you know, after taking uh, some introductory courses in in biology, which gave, you know, strong emphasis on molecular and cellular systems and actually beginning to take courses in chemistry, you know, like organic chemistry and, and more advanced courses, I really fell in love with the world of molecules and in particularly the the molecular systems that make up the make up the cell, and so I very quickly developed uh, in college a, a passion for chemistry and biochemistry, and decided, hey, I didn't really want to go to medical school to begin with, but I would love to be to become a biochemist, and so really set my sights on, on that as I was uh, again, you know, uh, pursuing my undergraduate training. Thank you. That, that that paints a pretty good picture. Uh, I know you and I are going to have some differences later, but this might be the biggest difference. I I hate chemistry. Um, <laughs> I, with I do not get it. I always did pretty well in math and science, but when it came to chemistry, I I would rather uh, do about anything else. So, uh, but I'm glad that there's people in the world who like chemistry. We need those people <laughs> um, who are interested in chemistry. I am not one of them though. Um. So that's interesting, though, that, that it started kind of in a in a pre-med route, and then you just got fascinated more with the research side of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you know, to me, the 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 world of molecules is like you're able to transport yourself to an alternate reality of sorts, you know, where you're at this microscopic realm and and you've got these incredibly beautiful molecules that display unusual symmetry and 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 behave in really fascinating and unusual ways and then when you you know look at the complexity of, of biochemical systems as you know which are these chemical super systems you know then you know the fun really starts so to me i was just always fascinated with you know that that the just the beauty of that the molecular realm and um and and so yeah it you know it it always i always felt a bit like an explorer you know, in those days that, you know, I was getting to see, you know, vistas that not many people really get to see or experience. And, and that was a lot of fun for me. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly cool, especially if you look at it historically. I mean, for most of humanity's existence, we haven't been able to look at molecules. <laughs> um, so it's it's definitely a, a cool thing to ponder. Uh, but yeah, when it comes to figuring out the math of it all, I, I start to not have such <laughs> such a good time. Um, well, so so you're you're doing research and you're you're 
looking at these systems. So when when did you first start having doubts about, you know, typical evolution narratives? Well, you know, as a undergraduate, I, you know, bought into the um, evolutionary paradigm. You know, it uh, I fully embraced the idea that life's origin and, and the design of living system and the history of life could be explained exclusively through evolutionary mechanisms. And in fact, that really helped justify my agnosticism, you know, because at that time I reasoned, and this is not un- unusual, uh, is that, look, if evolutionary mechanisms can explain everything, then there's really not a, a role for God to play. I don't know that I would have said that I was opposed to 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 God or to belief in God. In fact, if you ask me if I believed in God at that time, I, I could have very well said yes. But, you know, the God question wasn't important to me at all. It just, you know, wasn't even on my radar screen. And um, and so I felt like science was the superior way of knowing uh, about the world and, uh, and, you know, again, didn't see any reason for God at all. It, it, and my perspective changed, you know, really dramatically when I was in graduate school. Uh, you know, the graduate, the graduate school experience is, is remarkable to me. And, uh, you know, I, uh, began, you know, taking advanced courses in, in chemistry and biochemistry. I began to do my own research projects in the lab, started reading the scientific literature, interacting with other students and faculty members. And so, it was an incredible experience just to be immersed, you know, into the into the world of biochemistry. And, you know, through that process, really became became uh, just enamored even more so with molecular systems, you know, and those particularly inside the cell and began to appreciate their elegance and their sophistication and the ingenuity of these systems and became very curious as to how as as scientists should we ac- account for the their origin you know and that really is what would be known as the origin of life problem and and of course the explanation is chemical evolution but i just didn't want you know this hand waving explanation i wanted to know the details and it was really studying uh the origin of life models that were being presented at that time that i uh, came to the conviction in short order that uh i that it was unlikely that chemical evolution could generate these kind of molecular systems. And, and so it was at that point I became convinced that there had to be some kind of intelligent agent or some kind of mind that undergirds everything. Now, I didn't know who that mind was or if I even related to that mind, but I was convinced at that point that at least when it came to the origin of life and the origin of, 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 of what you might call core biochemical systems, that they had to be the, the work of a creator. Uh, but I was perfectly satisfied at that point to say that once life came into existence, that the history of life could be explained through evolutionary means. It was really much later that I even began to, to have questions about the capacity of evolution to explain the totality of living systems. That makes a lot of sense. Um, for I mean, I, I, I would... My gut is to say that um, there's, you know, some people make the distinction between macro and micro evolution. That's one way to look at it. You can also look at it as, you know, there's definitely different kinds of evolutions and adaptations and things of that nature. But 
it is true that really none of them are a uh, observable explanation of how this all started. Um, and you're right. Some in some times the the answer uh, the, sometimes the lack of answer feels like um, or whatever answer is offered feels very uh, uh, dis- disingenuous to the question, <laughs> um, and it feels like it's just kind of kicking the can, you know, further down. Um, so that makes a lot of sense to me that, 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 that your story could, uh, for lack of a better word, evolve that way. <laughs> um, and right. that you could, you know, uh, it, it doesn't sound crazy. Uh, I guess <laughs> I'll just say that, um, you know, I've, in preparation for this, I was just looking up different things and, um, you know, as much time as I spend in public or private calling Christians, uh, crazy, no offense to present company, uh, I don't like that attitude in a serious academic sense. I really don't. I don't I don't appreciate just calling people crazy or like they're lunatics for um arriving at conclusions that are different than yours. I don't think that's a uh, very productive or uh really a good thing to do for for humans to humans. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um you know, and 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 there are some Christians that I would call crazy too. By the way, even though, <laughs> wouldn't we even all? Yeah, even though they're my brothers and sisters, right? Uh, it, you know, in Christ, I, I uh, at times I I uh, think sometimes uh, as Christians we can be our own worst enemy in terms of, of presenting the faith to you know to to people that you know for whatever reason are non-believers. So you know we always don't do ourselves the the the, the best service along those lines. But, you know, uh, I, I uh, came to faith in Christ, you know, shortly after reaching the conviction that there was a mind behind everything. Uh, and I've, I've really, have, that was, gosh, like 35 years ago. And I've really have spent uh, the, the last, you know, 35 years revisiting those conclusions that I, I drew, uh, you know, as a, a, a or arrived at as a graduate student, you know, I uh, have, you know, continued to explore the original life question. I've continued to explore the case for design and the counter, you know, to the design arguments. And, uh, you know, I'm more convinced today than ever that, you know, the conclusions I arrived at were sound. But, you know, it's interesting to me, and, and not to derail the conversation here, but when I was a graduate student back in the 1980s, uh, it's been a long time ago now. Um, you know, there were two books that everybody was talking about that were popular science books, and they both were written by Francis Crick. One was called uh, What Mad Pursuit, which is a, a wonderful autobiographical account of the, of the discovery of DNA from uh, Francis Crick's perspective. And the other book was Life Itself, also written by Francis Crick. And in both books, he he essentially uh, makes statements that suggest to me uh, conclusions very similar to the ones that I was drawing as a graduate student. So in, in What Mad Pursuit, he, he closes the book by saying, you know, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. And, and so in other words, his point is that there is a, a natural proclivity to see biochemical systems as being designed and and as scientists, we need to suppress that and pursue, you know, evolutionary uh, explanations. And then, you know, in life itself, he he makes the, the the statement that 
you know, it would almost be a, a miracle. You know, the origin of life appears at the moment to almost be a miracle. So many are the, the things that have to be satisfied to get it going. And so, in other words, not to put myself in the same category as Francis Crick, you know, but it's interesting that as a young graduate student, I was stumbling upon very similar ideas to what uh, Crick was articulating, you know, in both of those books. And so, you know, the the idea that, you know, we don't know how to explain the origin of life is not controversial at all, even among origin of life researchers. And, you know, the idea that, you know, biochemical systems that have at least the appearance of design also is not controversial. Uh, it, it, you know, it's uh, even though, you know, most scientists would view the origin of life in, in, in materialistic terms. Gotcha. One quick, uh, I, just, I just want to ask you one more thing before we get into the bulk of all this. Um, do you, I, I'm assuming that you're, conv- you being convinced of intelligent design is still a separate thing from you coming to Christ, right? Because it, it, can you can you speak to that? Like maybe talk about what made you come to Christ? Because those are kind of, they're related, but they're not necessarily the same thing, right? Yes, uh, you know, I mean, to you know, to me, to become a uh, somebody that is a Christian theist, you first of all have to be convinced that that there is a God that exists, and so that is really, the, in my mind, the first step. Uh, and and so, to me, the question on the table then was, well, who is God, and do I relate to God at all? And uh, you know, and I actually began. Uh, going down a path of universalism, where maybe the different religions of the world were just simply different ways that God uh, attempted to communicate to to the different peoples of the world, uh, and um, and it was through that process that I uh, met a, a a Pentecostal pastor, <laughs> and and he you know asked me a question: Have you you know ever read the Bible? And other than uh, reading through Genesis one, the answer was no. I've never really picked up the Bible and read it, and um, and so he said, "Well, then, how do you know it's not true?" And I, I felt like he had a point, so I actually got a copy of the Bible and began to read uh, through the New Testament, and I started through you know the Gospel of Matthew, and you know it was like it was re- remarkable to me because it's like oh. This is, you know, where the Christmas story comes from, you know, not growing up in a Christian home. You know, those things aren't necessarily, you know, obvious. And and, and that captured my interest, but it was really reading through the Sermon on the Mount that was impactful to me, where I recognized really my shortcomings, you know, what you might call my sin. And I recognized that what Jesus was teaching was how to live an authentic righteous life, which is what I wanted to do. Uh, but I also realized there was no way that I could do that. And and I had this uh, conviction at that point in time that you might call, in a sense, a, a religious experience of sorts, that this is actually true. And so there wasn't anything that, you know, objectively convinced me that it was Christianity it was really more uh, the experience that I had. And it was really later on that I was even introduced to the idea of Christian apologetics and the fact that you could make, you know, kind of a historical argument for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, but it, so to me, it wasn't uh, 
the, the process of, of recognizing a creator to, to me was a scientific conclusion uh, that I drew, but the conversion experience was very much an experience. It wasn't, you know, uh, uh, I don't think it was irrational, but it wasn't based on, you know, uh, a, an analysis of the evidence. Awesome. Thank you for sharing and filling me in. Um, so let's get into it. This, this whole idea of intelligent design, right? Uh, first question I just have to ask right off the bat. Is there actually a difference between creationism and intelligent design as theories? Um, I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, in that, in the, the intelligent design movement, it essentially attempts to be an 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 a an a religious movement in the sense that the argument is that um there is evidence for bona fide design in biological systems in the 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 nature of of the earth you know th- that is like a, a rare earth hypothesis and that in the in the very makeup or fabric of the universe and that that design is detectable through science and and that's where intelligent design as a, the, at least the intelligent design movement stops. Uh, creationism, on the other hand, takes the, the perspective that there is actually a transcendent personal creator that uh, is responsible for the world that we live in. Uh, and that, that creator could have intervened through process or that creator could have intervened in a direct personal way through maybe fiat command or something like that. To bring about his creative purposes, uh, and so in a sense, creationism would subsume intelligent design, or intelligent design could could point to s- different versions of creationism. So they're they're not mutually exclusive, but they they really are distinct uh, programs, at least. Uh, and of course, within a creationism umbrella, I know people who are Islamic creationists. You know. Uh, there's Jewish creationists and, you know, Christian creationists. And within those arenas, they are young earth, old earth, and, and even, uh, uh, people that you would call evolutionary creationists. So creationism is, is really a broad set of ideas, you know, and even in intelligent design, there's, you know, uh, an openness to common descent, you know, within the ID movement. So, uh, it, 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 they're, they're not monolithic s- systems, and and they they do overlap, but there are subtle and nuanced differences between them. Gotcha. Thank you for that. I think that was pretty clarifying because um, I think they those terms obviously get conflated a lot. Um, and again, it's it's not the worst linguistic crime in the world, I don't think. Um, but it's worth pointing out where they differ. So let let me go this way. Um. Evolution on at least a small scale, um, and probably even more so than that, is is observable. Um, and I would say it's more observable than seeing intelligent things design things or create things. Um, so the I, the idea of evolution certainly can imply assumptions, but I don't think it usually postulates to be certain about things. Um, just what is most likely or most probable. And so the origin of the universe or where conscious comes from, I'm not sure evolution is necessarily trying to answer that question. I guess it tries to answer that question, but it certainly acknowledges it cannot fully um, prove what the origin of the universe was. Um, So so for you, do you think 
Or do you view intelligent design as just one possible theory or as the most rational theory? In my view, it should be a theory that is on the table, you know, that um, uh, is is uh, viewed as a, a possible explanation. Uh, I don't know that it that I would say it's the only, you know, the only theory that should be considered or the or the best theory necessarily, but it clearly is a theory that should be on the table in my view. Uh, and of course, that's my that perspective is outside the mainstream scientific arena. I I'm, I fully am aware of that. You know, um, you know, and, and to your point, you know, we have observed evolution happening. You know, th- there's no question that that evolution is indeed a fact. You know, and I think the you know we've observed what we might call microevolution or, or variation happening within a species. We've seen uh, at least very strong inferences for speciation taking place, if not even directly observing it. And of course, I think it's on non-controversial that microorganisms evolve, you know, so, you know, I, in, and, you know, evolutionary mechanisms in my view could, could even be extrapolated to go further than just simply explaining the origin of species. Uh, but I don't believe that those mechanisms that we've identified are sufficient to account for the totality of biology. Uh, setting chemi- the issue of chemical evolution aside, you know, I, I don't know that those mechanisms are capable of, of accounting for the origin of, of eukaryotic cells, for example, or the origin of body plans and, and you know, complex, you know, multicellular animals. Uh, you mentioned consciousness. I, I don't know that that we've got good evolutionary models for how consciousness might emerge, you know. And so there are, you know, some very important transitions in life's history where current evolutionary theory falls short in my estimation. And and those are places that I think you could potentially posit the role of intelligent agency. You could also take the view that these are just, you know, deep, impenetrable scientific mysteries that we may never have an answer for. And that's a perfectly reasonable position to take. But at least where those where evolutionary theory falls short presents an opening that I think somebody could could you know use as a way to produce to introduce design into the into the explanatory suite of options you know and in terms of is design observable i think the answer is yes you know and and i would equate um that to you know to, to the homologies that we see in you know organisms that would naturally group together you know, one explanation for those homologies is is that it reflects common descent. Uh, you know, but you're not really observing macroevolution. What you're observing are patterns that uh, you would argue could be explained through, you know, a macroevolutionary type of event or a set of events, right? Or or macroevolutionary history, uh, where the assumption is on the part of many people is that the Mechanisms of microevolution could be extrapolated to explain these larger scale transformations that are observed over vast periods of time, you know. Um, but there are alternative possibilities. It's interesting that prior to Darwin, uh, people like Sir Richard Owen saw those shared features as reflecting essentially an archetypical design that existed in the mind of a creator that was functionally manifested, and so. In in the sense that homologies 
are used to make the case for macroevolution, you could argue that the, the design features that we see in living organisms could be, could be used to posit the role of a designer. Uh, uh, and, and so I think there is observable evidence in a sense for, for both models. Yeah. Uh, to maybe, maybe a good, uh, part to spot to like talk about maybe the difference between possibility and plausibility. Um, because certainly many things are possible, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and uh, really an infinite amount of things, um, are possible. Uh, but there's, there's a level of plausibility. And I think, again, not a scientist, but I think a lot of times when, when people are using evolutionary models to then, um, make inferences, they are indeed making inferences, but they're making what, uh, what seems to be very plausible inferences. Um, so, so I guess that's where, where I'm trying to get with that question with intelligent design is I, I, uh, it is obviously very possible that there's an intelligent designer, but is it plausible in the same sense? Uh, you talk about models. Uh, do, do you just have to use a very different model to make it plausible? Yeah, well, you know, when you start talking about intelligent design, there I think there are two components to what you're looking at here. One is design detection, and and then the other would be the the mechanism of instantiating that design. Right. And, and so in a sense, those are, are really two very different questions. Uh, but, you know, I would, you know, I would point out that, um, there are scientific disciplines that are, in a sense, intelligent design disciplines. And, and, you know, uh, people that work in these fields don't like it when you say it, but in fact, it, it, it yeah, it's true. For example, let's take archaeology, particularly archaeology that is applied to you know, the hominin uh, fossil record. So, you know, you, you have archaeologists that can examine a rock and determine if that rock was shaped by natural processes or shaped by some kind of intelligent agent, let's say Homo habilis, right? And that they use a very specific set of criteria to make that assessment. In fact, I've studied how archaeologists draw those conclusions and, you know, and there's a really a, a set of three criteria that they're using. You know, does this system display uh, what we might call artificiality or evidence for some kind of manipulation or evidence for design? Uh, are there alternative explanations that involve, you know, natural processes? You know, uh, you know, could that the, these features be due to the, the weathering of the rock or th to some kind of geo geological process? And then there's an area called experimental archaeology where archaeologists go into the lab and they try to replicate those features, those systems to see what it takes to, you know, to do that. And you see the same kind of reasoning uh, being employed by SETI, you know, the, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, where the claim is that we can dis determine uh, whether electromagnetic radiation is uh, emanating from a distant object through natural mechanisms or through the activity of some kind of intelligent alien civilization. And the criteria, again, are the same. You know, if you look at the, the recent proposal uh, or by A.B. Loeb at Harvard University, an astronomer uh, who argues that, oh, 
uh, Muamua, which was this interstellar object that passed through our solar system a couple of years ago, he actually makes an argument that this is an alien artifact. And his argument is essentially the same argument that an archaeologist would use, which is, you know, there are features that, that are artificial. We, it, we can't explain it through any reasonable natural process mechanism. And then he talks about his work in trying to create light sails to, to send, you know, sensors to uh, Alpha Centauri and, and uses that as a basis for interpreting you know, some of the features of Oumuamua. And so the, the, the point here is that, you know, you can des- develop a rigorous scientific technique to, to measure design uh, or a set of methodologies to measure design. And, and so, for example, in my book, The Cell's Design, I make a case for the artificiality of, of biochemical systems. That is that they, uh, that they you know, have the, the appearance of being designed and it's bona fide design, not apparent design. Uh, I, in a couple of books, Creating Life in a Lab and Origins of Life, I detail uh, why chemical evolutionary models can't explain, at least as we currently understand the models uh, or the process of chemical evolution, why it can't, you know, ex- explain the origin of, of life and hence the origin of biochemistry. And then you know, in, in a in a book called Creating Life in the Lab, which I just mentioned, I also point out that any attempts to try to create cells uh, that are part of efforts in synthetic biology demonstrate intelligent agency is an integral part of, of that process. And so it's the same set of criteria that an archaeologist would use or a SETI researcher would use. Uh, and so I would argue that it, it, it could be understood as a bona fide you know, scientific conclusion that is, uh, is, you know, robustly plausible. Okay, this is where my mind went, uh, the non-science mind went. That's, uh, that's still, in those examples, we're still making assumptions about, um, about kind of, uh, creatures or intelligence, like the variables are not, uh, are more, or excuse me, are more concrete than um the idea of someone who could do something like create a universe right like that's still contained within this within like a very material world so i i guess like the model the model that these scientists are using to determine whether something came from intelligence or naturally occurred is still operating kind of within the material world and not expect and not and not inferring all the way back to the creation of something. Does that make sense where the problem I'm spotting? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, what, you, you, you know, you're, you're raising a, a I think a, a good point, you know, and, and that is that, you know, we're operating within the confines of our universe when we were looking at study explanations, when we're looking at, um, you know, explanations for the archeological record. Uh, but I don't know that by positing uh, an intelligence that exists outside the universe is necessarily necessarily undermines the plausibility of that model, right? Uh, or or, or the, of the design model. It's just that you know there's a a bias within science today towards pursuing materialistic mechanistic explanations. 
you know, and th- this is called methodological naturalism. And I'm not opposed to methodological naturalism. I, I would em- embrace what I would call soft methodological naturalism. But I do think that there are times where the data is pointing us uh, away from strictly a materialistic explanation. Uh, and and if that's where the data is pointing, then there should be at least an option to explore the, the possibility. Well, I agree that there should always be the option to explore possibility in other fields like philosophy, spirituality, and other things. But I guess it's just like, but but where the science stops, I feel like you have to start over, not just keep going with um with something else. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, in in a sense, you know, this is um, you know, I mean, probably our our our, our disagreement is more related to the the nature of science itself more so than anything else and you know and i understand the the value of methodological naturalism where you want to pursue materialistic explanations and even from somebody who holds to a, a christian worldview i would say that you know that methodological naturalism is fully compatible with you know the idea of of a creator providentially instituting laws of nature and processes within nature that are predictable, uh, that, that are regular processes. Uh, and, and that, you know, would lend your, itself to looking for, again, mechanistic explanations for phenomena that fall underneath that, that umbrella where you're really dealing with proximal causes. But when you're now scientifically probing questions that deal with origins, and what you might even say ultimate causation, I mean, that's where, you know, I think you have to have an openness to the possibility that there could be inputs that are coming, you know, uh, outside the outside the system itself, outside the universe itself. And, and you know, and so that's where, where I think we would probably disagree is that I think, uh, you know, let, let, let's, you know, let me use this as an example. Uh, to kind of highlight really what I think is a, a is a philosophical bias that is artificially restricting the the, the province of science. So um, you know we we know that at least our yo- our local universe appears to have a beginning, right? I'm not an astronomer, but this is what I understand is that you know the, the you know this is you know in a sense part of Big Bang cosmology that matter, energy, space, and time seem to have a a singularity, uh, a, a sing- arise from a singularity that could be understood as a as a beginning. You know, which means that in you know that there is something outside the universe that caused the universe. You know, one explanation is that it's a transcendent personal creator. The other explanation is that it's we're we're part of a multiverse. That there's you know some kind of fluctuating, eternally existing gravitational field or this quantum foam that's popping universes into existence. Uh, and, and, and so the multiverse explanation and, and appealing to a transcendent creator are equivalent ideas. Both of them, in a sense, are not genuinely testable. But many in the scientific community would strongly prefer a multiverse uh, because it is a mechanistic, materialistic explanation and conforms to methodological naturalism, you know, and, and they would reject the, uh, the role of a transcendent personal creator 
because it's it it violates the tenets of methodological naturalism. So there, what you see is a preference for a particular explanation based on philosophical constraints, not on uh, what what is what is logically or evidentially plausible. And, and so I you I see that same bias being imported, let's say, into the origin of life question, where you know I've interacted with a lot of origin of life researchers. I've published. Uh, articles in, in origin of life journals. And, you know, uh, origin of life researchers are f- the first to admit we have no clue how life originates, but they also are absolutely convinced that, that, that chemical evolution is going to be the answer. A- and, and it's essentially, uh, uh, a conviction, you know, t- towards a materialistic explanation, not necessarily what the evidence, you know, shows. And, and again, it's fine to have that conviction, right? But it, it, it is a, it is a philosophically driven conviction. It's not evidentially driven. Well, it might be evidentially driven though. Um, because again, it's, it's, it's inferring things from what is observable rather than, um, inferring things that from that from what might not be as observable, if that makes sense. We, there's a lot, observable and also material are two very difficult words to, because right. they can mean different things to different people. Um, uh, I want to keep going on this, especially you brought up multiverse and that's like my favorite thing, but I'm like, I gotta keep moving or <laughs> this will be a five hour <laughs> episode. Um, so first off, I, I think I know where you, where you sit on this, but just to clarify, so the Bible is literature. That's a you know different category. It, it, there's certainly science to the Bible as far as its reliability, but um, it, broadly speaking, the category is literature. So while both can contain evidence about humanity, dare I say, contain some truth. Um, do you agree the Bible should not be relevant as far as what is taught about science? Uh, yeah, I, I would actually agree with that. Um, you know, uh, you know, one of the things we we do at reasons to believe is present what we call a testable creation model, you know, where we're trying to integrate the discoveries from science with what we see as the, the, the creation accounts found in scripture. And, uh, you know, many people misunderstand what we're doing when we do that, where they argue, well, are you trying to present, you know, a biblically based scientific theory? And the answer is no, but what we're trying to do is present you know, a case for the reliability of the creation accounts in scripture in a framework that those people who are scientifically minded feel comfortable engaging, right? So it's really what you might call an apologetics tool that we're using, not, you know, trying to, uh, not trying to, in a sense, reimagine how science should be done, if that makes any sense. So, I would actually agree with you that 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 uh, I mean the, the Bible in that sense shouldn't become part of the the construct of science. But it's not to say that there can't be discoveries in science that that again can be used to affirm what what we see in Scripture. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I I think I agree. You know, I I I didn't study very much science, but I studied a lot of Bible. So I'm not uh I'm not against anyone um uh creating a worldview out of what they've read in the Bible. Um, but uh, I think it is very important to 
always distinguish between to be able to make distinctions not that there's there's obviously overlap in the human experience but if we're not able to make distinctions uh we i think actually uh stilt the conversation sometimes you you know you've mentioned your uh, rtb and you yourself are old earth creationist um so so for a christian the earth it could be 10,000, 10 million, 10 billion years old. And it doesn't really affect the central tenets of their faith. Um, I mean, it might undermine some trust in ancient texts, but, but to go against the proven results of science in favor of a dogma, that, that seems like certainty more than faith. So, so is the age of the earth important in a Christian worldview? My personal feeling is the answer is no. Uh, and uh, because I don't think the age of the earth has any bearing ultimately on central doctrines of, of the Christian faith, of the historic Christian faith. So, um, yeah, so I would say that the short answer is no. And, you know, and, and I think we, we want as Christians to take, you know, the, the findings of science seriously, uh, you know, but I don't think there's anything wrong with asking critical questions about, you know, about scientific conclusions and even challenging the mainstream. So, you know, I think if you have come to the conviction that by reading scripture that the earth should be young, I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask penetrating and probing questions as to how do we really know that the earth is, you know, four and a half billion years old? You know, what are the methods that are used? Are, are, are those methods reliable? What are the assumptions that undergird those methods? So I think those are reasonable questions to ask. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think we, at the same time, we need to, um, you know, once we've asked those questions, I think we need to be open to, you know, accepting the, the answers that, that come. Now, that may seem like a hypocritical, that come from science. That may seem like a hypocritical statement because I am skeptical about aspects of the evolutionary paradigm, but my skepticism is largely steeped in, um, in, in, you know, scientific concerns more so than, than anything else. Uh, and plus I do actually see again, evidence for bona fide design in biological systems. And I recognize that again, teleology is, is not part of the construct of biology today. Uh, so, you know, my, position that again there's evidence for a creator's fingerprints and biology is is driven from the evidence that I see and my skepticism about at least facets of the evolutionary paradigm I I would argue is is scientifically based. Uh though again it, it is admittedly outside of the mainstream. Sure. Can I and you know feel free to not answer. I don't want to probe too much, but like if you were presented evidence in your field that was more compelling towards uh towards a evolutionary model of the origin of the universe would that sway you or are you because you know i came from faith and i came from uh most of the creationists i was around were certainly young earth creationists so that's kind of a a different brand of creationism for sure um but but would you would you be open to actually exploring that or would your faith uh tug at you more no, I, I mean, I would be open to exploring that. And, uh, you know, to me, the, the one issue that arises from, you know, the, the claim 
or the view that God would employ evolution as the means to create uh, is that when it comes to the origin of humanity, you know, I am of the view that scripture teaches, you know, that, that humanity comes from a, a primordial pair, uh, you know, a, a, a primeval couple, an Adam and Eve, and that they are the progenitors, the, the sole progenitors of all humanity. And there are, in my estimation, critical Christian doctrines that rest upon that idea. And I, I struggled you know, to, to see how you could square that idea with an evolutionary origin of humanity. So there is a place where I do have a, a faith commitment that, that, that kind of orients me towards skepticism about, about at least, uh, you know, about human evolution and about our evolutionary origin. But there are, you know, people recently like William Lane Craig in his book, In the Quest for the Historical Adam, or my friend Josh Schwamadas, who's a, uh, a Christian who uh, des- uh, describes himself as a Christian who accepts evolutionary science, they've produced models for how you could have a historical Adam and Eve within an evolutionary framework. I, you know, don't buy comp- their ideas, but there are interesting proposals that that suggest options for somebody, you know, who uh, holds the view that that God, you know, used evolution as a means to create. So I'm, you know, very open to that idea. I mean, there, there is, you know, on one hand, compelling evidence that for common descent, but I'm, I'm not completely convinced that that is the only explanation for homologies. You know, I, I am, am enamored by the thinking of Sir Richard Owen and, and have, you know, been working on developing kind of an, an archetype approach to, uh, to genomics and to comparative genomics that that could present a, a, an alternative design model that could explain, you know, features in the genomes from a design framework. So, you know, I, I'm, but I'm very open. In fact, I'm enamored by an idea known as structuralism. And it's a, it's a, a, it's not your grandfather's uh, evolution, but it's this idea that um, uh, it's not natural selection that actually shapes evolutionary outcomes, but those evolutionary outcomes are predetermined uh, uh, at the onset, that they are, that evolutionary processes are being dictated to or prescribed to by uh, the constraints in the, in the laws of nature so that the endpoints that we see in evolution are, again, determined ahead of the game and, and that life is going to evolve towards those endpoints irrespective of its starting point, irrespective of the influence of natural selection. And again, this is an idea known as structuralism that uh, one of the advocates of this view is uh, a biologist by the name of Simon Conway Morris. Uh, I'm actually exploring the possibility of a form of structuralism in prebiotic chemistry, where maybe indeed you could argue that there is an evolutionary origin to life, but that 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 evolutionary process has been jimmy rigged from the get go, uh, to, so that life is going to appear exactly the way it appears, regardless of, of how evolution transpires. So point being, I, I, I am open to, uh, to, you know, evolutionary models. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not closed minded, you know, about, about the possibility of evolution being a viable explanation. It's just that currently, uh, if I accepted the idea that life 
uh, can be explained, you know, through evolutionary means, whether it's God guided or unguided, uh, there's still outstanding scientific problems that I don't think are resolved. Uh, and, and therefore, I wouldn't see that as being a satisfying explanation necessarily. Thank you. That, that's helpful. I, I appreciate your willingness to disclose kind of, yeah, there's a, there is a there is a bias, but you're not saying it in the sense of like, but it's not like a bias where I refuse to look at things and, and potentially accept them. It's just kind of where you're starting from. And that's just being a human, right? Like we all have biases where we're starting from. Um so so thank you for for doing that um so so the the thing i hear most when i've when i've from from intel granted a lot of this is old news because i haven't looked into it that much recently but uh the intel people who are proponents of intelligent design they'll talk about irreducible complexity and i i'll i don't necessarily buy it but i'll buy it for for a moment let's assume that some things are too complex for for human beings to understand that that alone does not prove that there was intelligence. Um, you know, maybe things are just as chaotic as they are ordered. Um, you know, for all the complexity uh, that functions that we determine as good, uh, there is complexity that also, you know, kills humans and kills the planet. So you can believe there is a designer. There's nothing wrong with that. But you can also believe there's not one. So does that make the irreducible the irreducible complexity argument irrelevant or a faith issue and not a science one yeah that's a that's an interesting question and and just as a a, a point of clarification i i have a, a love hate relationship with the the idea of irreducible complexity uh and 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 and, and i'm very sympathetic to your point i see a, a lot of uh well-meaning christians say well you know when i look at biological systems they're just way too complex to be explained uh, through evolution well for to, for the very reasons that you're pointing out, complexity is not uh, a a good marker for a creator's involvement at all. Uh, now, what Michael Behe is trying to do with irreducible complexity, and I see the same thing with uh, Bill Dembski and his idea of specified complexity, is, is saying that it's not just simply complexity, but that there is a characteristic uh, to that complexity or or patterns to that complexity that suggests design. Uh, and, and so that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to move beyond just simply that, that idea of, of complexity, you know, you know, being the marker for design or being the argument for design, you know, and, and what I don't like about, uh, irreducible complexity is the way that oftentimes the argument is framed by Christians where they'll say, well, evolution can't explain the origin of irreducibly complex systems. Therefore, it must be designed. And and the problem with that is that there are evolutionary models that have been posited to explain the origin of irreducibly complex systems. Uh, co-option, for example, is is one such model. Now, I'm not I'm not I've not seen compelling models employing co-option that can ex, ex, do a good job of explaining, you know, things like the bacterial flagellum, as an example. Uh, but but. All you have to do is suggest plausibility and the, that the irreducible complexity argument falls apart, you know, uh, under those, you know, when framed that way. Uh, now I do agree that you know, many systems that are designed by human designers are irreducibly complex. And so you could take that as an in, in, indicator of design, 
but I don't know that you could actually say that it it demonstrates or proves or makes a compelling case for design. I actually uh, like rather would would rather employ kind of a a watchmaker type of argument. Can you just I I'm I'm familiar with the watchmaker argument, but yeah, can you go ahead and just give a brief summary summary of what it is? Sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it the, the watchmaker argument uh, popularized, I, I guess you could say, by by William Paley in the late 1700s. And it's, the, you know, he's essentially comparing a watch and a rock where he, you know, points out that a rock could be explained through natural processes, but a, a watch requires a watchmaker to account for it. And so he argues, well, why do we conclude the need for a watchmaker with a watch versus, uh, uh, you know, no watchmaker is required to explain the rock? And, you know, and his argument is that the, the watch has certain attributes that reflect the work of a mind. He, he refers to it as being a contrivance. And and so by analogy, he argues, well, biological systems seem to be have more in common with a, a watch than they do with a rock and therefore concludes there's a divine watchmaker. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know that that argument has been challenged by uh, uh, many philosophers following after David Hume's critique of that kind of reasoning. You know, I'm, I'm well aware that people argue that through evolution, you know, the, that watchmaker uh, is is a blind watchmaker or natural selection is the watchmaker. You know, but I, I think that that argument uh, is is uh, uh, has merit to it in that, you know, we, we there's certain attributes that design systems possess. And one of the things I find remarkable is that the hallmark characteristics of biochemical systems have those attributes. And so that at least makes it reasonable to think that those systems are designed. But with a watchmaker argument, you also have to then eliminate the, the plausibility or the reasonableness of natural process mechanisms accounting for those features. And and so when you're arguing the watchmaker or making the watchmaker case at a with biochemical systems, we we can go to the origin of life and say, well, we don't know how these biochemical systems could have emerged through natural processes. Therefore, again, it's it it makes the case for design, you know, reasoned or 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 compelling. So so I would prefer a watchmaker approach more so than than you know uh, the the type of approach I see many Christians use, which is to say, you know, evolution can't do this, therefore it's designed. And and so really, the their argument is more predicated on what evolution can or can't do, as opposed to what are the features of that system that would allow us to positively conclude that it's it's actually designed. And that's where the watchmaker reasoning takes us, I think. That's interesting. I have this this challenge to the watch. I have problems that are maybe similar to Hume's with the watchmaker um, model. Mostly, they mostly go like this. And again, not a scientist, not a philosopher, just a dude with a microphone. But um, I, uh, the way I look at it is, it, the watch is never created. It's not created out of nothing. It's created out of resources, right? Um, and and so to to in. To, yeah, it was uh, uh, arranged by a mind, sure, and you might be able to to focus on that. But um, 
but that really i guess you could point to intelligent arrangement that's still that's still different than creating out of nothing ex nihilo right and so the that's not that that i guess is kind of where my problems with the watchmaker uh arise yeah no i mean you know in in a sense what you're 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 pointing out as you said is is really kind of the hume's critique which is you know um that that there are you know while there may be analogies between the design of living systems and you know um the design of 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 human human systems or the product of human activity there's also disanalogies as well and so over the years i've i've looked at you know different you know disanalogies that people have proposed and and have argued that that those disanalogies really don't invalidate the you know the watchmaker argument you know and and the thing is is that you know paley wasn't really arguing for kind of a creation out of nothing uh he was you know really you know assuming that that matter existed uh and that how do you explain that arrangement of a matter that we see is it through natural processes or is it through some kind of involvement of intelligent agency and and, and so you know, it, when you look at, you know, um, the, the Genesis one creation account, there's only, uh, three pra- places in that account where you see, uh, the idea of creation out of nothing. One is, would be with respect to the universe, the, the word that's used in the original Hebrew is bara. Then there's, uh, the use of bara dealing with the origin of what appear to be sea mammals. Interestingly enough, and then there's the word bara is used with respect to the origin of humanity. Almost every other place that deals with the uh, the origin of biological systems, the words asah, yetsar, or bana are used, which in a sense mean to fabricate something out of existing material. So it still involves a divine action, but it's it's not out of nothing. Uh, and, and even when it comes to the creation of human beings, the, the word, is, the words that are used are both a saw and bara, where humans are made out of something that, that pre-exists, but there's also something original to humans that, that was never, that never existed before, which you could, which seems to be connected to the idea that we as human beings bear God's image. So, so, you know, to your point, I, I think, you know, I don't think uh, Paley was arguing for a creation out of nothing in his argument, but really, how do you explain the arrangement of the, of the parts? You know, uh, do you need intelligent agency to account for that arrangement of parts? And, and so, you know, likewise, when I look at biochemical systems, you know, obviously these systems are not created out of nothing, but they, they are created out of molecular systems that, that you know, were pre-existing. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and it's even quite possible that God could have, you know, created within the, within the laws of nature. Gotcha. Uh, first off, always fun to, to hear Hebrew because that's something I am actually somewhat familiar with. <laughs> so, uh, good job. I was like, oh, wow. He, you know, <laughs> you, you did, you did good, uh, <laughs> with your Hebrew definitions better than I do sometimes. Well, thank so, you. well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, so, in in that vein, though, if he's not arguing out of nothing, are you saying that 
I guess I guess in this what it gets me thinking about is like, well, what's the difference between saying Big Bang and God at this point or or a deism type of of ideology? Because it, it to postulate, oh, it looks like something started this. That's not intelligent design, right? Like we're we're saying it has a mind or a purpose or something, right? Yeah, to me, when you, when you talk about the beginning of the universe, I don't know that it that in and of itself that necessarily compels you towards theism. But I think, you know, it could be deism or it could just simply be, again, a strictly materialistic explanation if you're positing something like the multiverse, right? When you look at the fact that there seems to be design in the universe with respect to the fine tuning of the constants or when you see what a, the appearance of design, uh, again, in, in living systems, if you take that as bona fide design, I think that that design implies a, a personality, you know, behind the universe because design is something that arise that in, implies a, a, a personal uh, being of some sort that produced that design. That it implies kind of an, a purpose or an intentionality, which are attributes that I think come from a from a personality. So when you couple the beginning of the universe with the the design of the universe, I think you are in the arena of theism as your option. If you're positing again, you know, a creator, you know, from that evidence. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. Um, and, and you brought up, you said the word, it's uh, fine tuning, which I always, I like that one because uh, I'm a big fan of Christopher Hitchens and he even admitted, he's like the fine tuning argument, you know, in his classic sarcastic way, he was like, fine tuning is the only thing that a, a theist has ever said to me. That's compelling. Um, and, and and I think that's worth noting that someone like him would say that um, because but because it is true that that fine tuning process seems to be uh, somewhat purposeful. But on the on the flip side, we are, you know, we know we're pattern seeking um, creatures. And so it makes sense that we would um, try to try to see the patterns um, beyond what we're capable of observing. And also, obviously, we can't observe cosmology all at once. So, so there's, it's almost like there's so many variables and an unimaginable, unimaginable distance between, um, you know, where, where we are now and what we can infer from history. So that, I guess, again, we can use models to guess, but I, I, I haven't heard from too many like evolutionary biologists, um, they're really reluctant usually to say too many theories about the origins of the universe. It's usually in the vein of this is something that's interesting to me, but they're not presenting that in the same sense of like, this is my best explanation. They're just saying here, here's a plausibility. So I I guess I'm coming back to this problem of like intelligent design. I'm not saying it's impossible. And, and for all I know, it might be plausible, but, but what is the evidence that it is plausible? Something that, um, you know, I think, should factor into this this conversation is some is an interesting problem that has been identified by original life researchers and uh in in for example uh, an original life researcher by the name of Clement Reichertz uh published a um published a, 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 a article a perspectives piece in nature communications and i'm trying to remember the the name the title of the article uh, but but what he was discussing in the article was the problem of what we might call unwarranted researcher involvement, where his point is that when we look at the work that's taking place in prebiotic chemistry, uh, 
what's happening is that many times the researchers themselves are actually involving themselves unwittingly in the experimental design such that their involvement actually influences the outcome. You know, he, he basically is, you know, arguing that, you know, uh, in a sense, intelligent agency has uh, become a component of a lot of the prebiotic simulation studies that are being done. And if, it, if you remove the involvement of the researcher, it's highly unlikely that those prebiotic studies would be successful. And, and so, you know, he recognizes this unwarranted researcher involvement as essentially pushing you into the arena where you are dangerously close to considering divine intervention as, you know, as, as a problem, you know, for the origin of life. You know, if you're thinking about the origin of life in, in terms of chemical evolution. And in fact, this was the theme of my book, Creating Life in the Lab, which I published about a decade before Clemen Reichert's, you know, made this very point, you know, where, you know, in what you see from prebiotic, you know, simulation studies almost, almost in, inevitably is that again, researcher involvement, unwarranted researcher involvement is unacknowledged, but is playing a key role in the success. And, and so you have people like Simon Conway Moore saying that the, the hand of the researcher becomes, in these types of scenarios, for all intents and purposes, the hand of God, right? And so this is something where you're seeing empirical evidence that intelligent agency seems to be necessary to convert molecules into chemical supersystems that would assume the properties of life. You see this, this same problem emerging in work in synthetic biology where people are trying to create protocells in the lab, where again, you know, the, the, the researchers are playing a, a, a central role in converting, you know, molecules into these protocells that again are beginning to assume some of the properties of life. So, you know, th this, you know, is something that I think factors into into the the plausibility conversation, right? Is that it's not just simply that we're seeing what we might interpret as evidence for design, or it's not just simply that we're pointing out, you know, the 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 shortcomings of chemical evolution, but we're actually seeing empirical observations that are pointing us to, you know, the 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 role of intelligent agency. In, in the transformations needed for the very first cells to emerge. Sure, but there, I mean, that, that's a valid point. It's not, it's not invalid by any means, but you're also, I mean, you can't do experiments <laughs> without being involved in them. Uh, this is actually, I've, I've pointed out the problem of, uh, doing experiments about prayer, right? Because of, uh, there's too, there's too much human factor in, in, determining the power of prayer uh because there's obviously been experiments done on on whether uh power whether prayer has power to heal people or not um with some very strange inconsistent results but sometimes usually pointing to that prayer is very powerful um but but there's there's an element of well yeah but you have to have you have to ask for a god's consent to participate in the study and if the god's not participating we don't know the evidence and the god would have to tell us so it, it, I, that's what that uh, anecdote made me think of, and and again, it's 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 an interesting point, but I'm not sure it's quite you know if we're if we're trying to observe things on such a small level, 
uh, I agree that like we're probably we're we're never going to get satisfactory answers for the origin of life in the same sense that we understand how our phones work, right? It's just it's a different thing. It's theorizing, um, and I'm fine with multiple theories being taught about the origins of the universe, including scientific guesses about the Big Bang, the Genesis narrative, Greek mythology, or even what someone you know a kid in a school might imagine something new, and that kid might be right. Who knows? But I think it could be dangerous, uh, particularly when evangelicals argue that creationism or intelligent design should be taught in science classrooms, at least with the approaches I've seen them use. Do you see any potential problems with teaching uh, intelligent design as science to, to children? I, I, I do. Uh, and, and, and before I answer that question, just let me go back and clarify something real quick about the argument that I was making. Uh, I, I do agree with you very much that. Um, you know, if you don't have the researcher setting up the experiment, then it's never going to happen. You know, so obviously there's some kind of researcher involvement by definition that needs to happen. There's no question about it. T- to me, my point is that it's not that the researchers are involved, but it's that they, they, it's an unwarranted involvement. Uh, w- in other words, it, they're, they've involved themselves to the point where they are actually becoming integrated into the experimental design whether they recognize that or not. So that's gotcha. that's the point that I'm making. Yeah. So now, yeah. And, and by the way, with respect to the idea of teaching intelligent design in, in schools, I, I would agree with you. I am not at this point in time comfortable with that. I, in my opinion, in once intelligent design legitimately becomes part of the construct of science, then at that point it can be introduced into, you know, into the, science curriculum in high schools, you know, or even, you know, junior high or whatever. But I, I don't think it has a place in the science classroom until it actually becomes a bona fide part of the scientific construct. And we're not at that point right now. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I don't think it has a place. I appreciate that. Uh, that's refreshing. Again, I, I understand that you're, you're, uh, your research into intelligent design is very different than what I was around back when I was in Bible college. Um, and I, and I'm very appreciative of it as, uh, as caring about, um, doing things the right way, you know, and not just, uh, uh, putting the, the cart before the horse, so to speak, and trying to get a, a certain view, um, on equal playing field with other views. I, I, when I was Googling around, I found, uh, you know, I'm not. I can't vouch for how how um, rigorous this study was, but uh, according to the Religion Among Scientists in International Context study, only 10 percent of scientists in the U.S. and the U.K. had no doubt that God exists. What's interesting is it's about 50 percent in other countries, um, but in the U.S. and U.K., uh, only about 10 percent of science scientists were basically committed theists. So. If there is a God who wants to reveal himself in nature, why are so many scientists skeptical? Yeah, that's that's a, a great question, and and I've seen um, results from the the Pew Research Foundation. Gosh, maybe it was a 2015 study, if I'm not mistaken, that, um, or maybe it was earlier than that, that that showed a little bit higher percentage. It was more in the neighborhood of of about 20 to 25 percent, depending upon the particular discipline that of scientists that believed in a personal God. And so, you know, the way this question is phrased is had no doubt. And so I, you know, 
that could account for the discrepancy is the way the question was asked, right? You know, um, but but yeah, you know, there is a a lower rate of belief of um, you know among scientists. You know, I I don't know the answer to that question. When you talk about maybe why scientists are skeptical, in my experience, a, a lot of times it's not so much that scientists are skeptical. It's that scientists haven't really thought about these issues. Uh, I've talked with a, a number of scientists who, you know, when I, you know, brought up, you know, some of my ideas about the origin of life, they were like, look, you know, I'm a scientist. I'm not a philosopher or a theologian. And so, you know, I don't really have any thoughts on this. But because I'm a scientist, I guess I would, would hold to some kind of atheistic perspective. So it wasn't like, this hardcore skepticism or this hardcore atheism, it was almost a default position because they somehow in their minds equated science with, with, uh, with uh, non-belief or a, or a lack of belief. It's hard to know how to make sense of that data because I think there's a number of sociological factors that we would have to consider, you know, as well as psychological factors. But you know, I, I think, you know, there is, you know, again, some of this, I, I'm just thinking about the scientists I knew uh, when I was in graduate student or the, the stu students of science. And again, a lot of people just never thought much about, about it or, you know, or their perception of, of what religion demands of them uh, has been shaped by young earth creationism, for example. You know, I, I think there, there's a lot of scientists who reject Christianity because they see, uh, Christianity equating to young earth creationism. And, and for that reason, they don't entertain, you know, again, the, the Christian faith. So there's, there's some of that going on. Um, you know, I, I think the, we talked a little bit about methodological naturalism. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, because of the influence of methodological naturalism, I think it leads people to conflate methodological naturalism with philosophical naturalism, who, you know, among, among scientists. Um, but in a sense, you're asking a really good question. And I'm not sure I've got a, a, even a good answer other than, you know, the speculation that I just engaged in here. Yeah, well, I, I I think you and I would speculate similar. I think part of it has to do with the t stereotypes, of course, but the typical person who's interested in science isn't necessarily the same person who's interested in like philosophy, like you were saying. Um, just just typing people, right? That's not to say a scientist can't do philosophy or a philosopher can't do science, but but I can see I can see that element of it. Um, I'm also wondering. I mean, in some maybe maybe i'm wrong here but in some sense the the term you're using um materialistic naturalism is that the is that the term you used a methodological naturalism methodological thank you methodological naturalism um in my head that's kind of science like that's what i think it is you know to some extent well you know i mean and of course this gets into a, a very complicated discussion about what exactly is science and, and to me what defines science is is essentially a methodology that posits uh, an explanation and then seeks out data to either confirm or to 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 falsify that idea that's being posited you know what you might call the scientific method 
I, I think today methodological naturalism is clearly a, a characteristic feature of science, but I don't know that it isn't. It's an essential aspect of, of science. I think it's something that's been tacked on in, in modern times. And it's not to say that methodological naturalism hasn't led to success in science, but uh, I don't know that it, it, I think it limits science in an artificial way and keeps science from actually probing uh, some very interesting questions that that science won't touch today, but it it actually has the capability of of engaging, you know, in in a in a positive and a productive way. And so I I just think that's unfortunate. But um, well, you actually you brought up a really important word just then, where you said falsifiable or unfalsifiable. But but the idea of God is unfalsifiable, correct? Um, yeah, that's that's probably true. Uh, you know, and, uh, but, you know, I would argue that, uh, when you are operating within a, a framework of methodological naturalism where you're only allowing for mechanistic explanations for, you know, phenomena in the universe, the origin of life is an example, then, then in a sense, chemical evolution becomes unfalsifiable because if you have only one category of explanations, which are materialistic explanations, then by definition, life must have evolved. And so even though every attempt you you take to try to explain the origin of life leads to a dead end, you can't, you, you can't go anyplace else other than to somehow posit some kind of evolutionary process. And so you see origin of life researchers routinely say things like, it's just a lot harder than we thought. Well, or give us more time and more money and we'll be able to eventually solve the problem. Those are, in a sense, a statements of conviction, or, or you might say faith, you know, faith-based statements, not evidentially based statements. Where again, you you can't falsify chemical evolution because the alternative, namely some kind of design model or creation model, is is excluded a priori. So. Uh, you know, it, I guess this idea of falsifiability kind of cuts both ways is, is what I'm trying to say. And um, well, I, 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 I think it's slightly different, though, because, again, everyone has presuppositions. Everyone has biases. I'm not denying that. But, uh, yeah, there's chemi- there's chemical uh, evolution. There's, you know, um, there's people who work with genes. There's there's all sorts of broad things in this field. I think they're all listening to each other under that larger umbrella of. Um, not even just natural selection, but all kinds of selection. Uh, the, even the word natural is kind of falling by the wayside because there are ideas of, you know, artificial selection and directional selection and all this other stuff. But so the, 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 that's a little more open minded than saying there's a God, you know, <laughs> um, not to say there's not anything wrong with saying there's a God. But again, it's just not falsifiable, I don't think, in the same sense. Um, but maybe I'm wrong on that. That's just kind of where my mind went. Yeah. Well, you know, although, um, you know, uh, the question you, you asked earlier about, you know, scientific skepticism, you know, you know, in a sense is, is, um, kind of touching on a problem called the, you know, the hiddenness of God problem, you know, or you see that the idea is like the problem of evil. Now, granted, these are philosophical arguments, but some people would argue that the problem of evil or, the problem of divine hiddenness actually falsifies 
belief in God. So, I mean, there, I guess there are, in that sense, philosophical ways that you could, you could falsify, you know, God's existence, if not scientific ways. Yeah, I, I, I well, and and in some sense, I I do some of that work on this podcast, <laughs> but um, but but it's it's still I don't I I think you can the thing the nice thing about God is is it's a it's actually um uh definitions are uh, there's a lot of variance in definitions of what God is, and and I would say even to the individual, um, you know, and and I think there's actually some beauty in that too, so I don't think it's bad. Um, we're getting towards the end of our time, unfortunately. I, again, I about three more hours, I think, of questions, but um, <laughs> I, we'll 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 make sure people still listen to this. So, um, you know, I thank first off, thank you for coming on, especially to you know what some might perceive as a hostile environment. I mean, uh, you know, I I my podcast name, Christianity is a cult. I believe Christianity is a cult, so. Um, I would never ask you to agree. You've been so nice to come on. So, uh, you know, thank you for that. But I, I see creationism and, and intelligent design most often perpetuated by, you know, undereducated evangelicals who simply want to, like, justify um, their transrational views of life um, and their, their irrational fear of materialism. Um, so at its worst, I feel like these ideologies help Christian leaders keep their followers like contained to dogmatic ideology without doing any kind of scientific inquiry. So do you think some of the problems that I found in Christianity would be helped or hindered by studying theories about the origins of the universe or just studying science in general? Um, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm all for Christians, uh, in immersing themselves in the study of science because you know it's it's my conviction that that you know s- scripture teaches that god has revealed himself to us through the record of nature and if that's the case then we we when we study nature through the the means of science that we should indeed uncover evidence for god's fingerprints and so i'm very much in favor of christians exploring the life of the mind you know and and that includes you know, engaging uh, in science, pursuing science as a career and as a as a calling. Uh, I, you know, I all for Christians, you know, engaging in in in, this, in phil- philosophy and history, you know, and in looking at how their worldview as Christians, you know, maybe shapes their approach to these areas. But you know, I very much advocate for the you know for the life of the mind. And I think if you have a robust faith as a Christian and a robust understanding of Christian theology, you know, these pursuits are not a threat to your faith, but, but would only enhance or augment or, or enrich your faith. Um, so I, you know, um, you know, I, you know, it's interesting. I would be interested in, in what your definition of a cult is, uh, but you know, I, I, you know, I have seen some expressions of Christianity that I think do fall, you know, rightly under the definition of of a cult. But there's other expressions of Christianity that, that I think uh, really, um, you know, while there there are there is dogma to Christianity, while there are you know the the essentials of the faith, uh, I think you know. There's a lot of freedom within Christian theology too. There's, you know, the 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 core beliefs of Christianity, but there's 
really freedom in in the non-essentials. And so a, a robust faith to me is one that explores, you know, different, you know, theological frameworks in the non-essentials uh, that, you know, open up a wide range of, of possibilities for, you know, what the faith could look like. So, um, I, you know, I'm sympathetic to your to your point about Christianity being a cult. But, you know, in, in my experience, uh, a lot of the people that advocate for some form of creationism or even some form of ID are, you know, highly educated, highly accomplished people. Uh, you know, it reasons to believe we uh, have a, a, a small team of staff scholars, as we refer to our team, uh, but we have a, a community of about 150 uh, volunteer scholars from a wide range of different disciplines that have aligned themselves with, with RTB and contribute to our the work that we do. And, and some of these people are incredibly impressive men and women who have impeccable academic credentials and have very impressive professional accomplishments. So, um, you know, I, I see a lot of, I see, I interact with a lot of people that would hold to some form of ID, some form of creationism that again are, are anything but, you know, undereducated or anything other than people that would be easily manipula- manipulated moreover or people that I don't would would never see manipulating other people as well so well I'm glad you're able to share that experience and obviously I don't want you in any circumstances where you're being manipulated or manipulative so I'm glad uh, I'm glad that's your experience um for your own sake I'll, I'll tell you my my three indicators of a cult are uh control containment and conversion um, if those are their main values above everything else, controlling people, containing people, and asking them to convert others, uh, then then I identify them as a cult. Um, but uh, to 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 wrap it up here, I'll I'll say, well, I'll ask this. Um, I th- I think I I appreciate that you can see some of 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 what I'm talking about, and obviously, uh, I know I I think I'm familiar enough with your worldview that uh you would you would see that. Y- you would fully acknowledge that humans hurt other humans and the rest of it. But do do you think there's, there's any trappings here um, uh, about specifically dogmatic ideology that, um, because that's an interesting, because in some ways I see scientific inquiry and dogmatic ideology as diametrically opposed. Uh, do you see it the same way or do you see it in a different way? I think there are probably aspects of, of, of the scientific enterprise today that, that are dogmatic, uh, you know, and again, we talked a little bit about methodological naturalism and I would see that as part of the, the quote unquote dogma of science, uh, you know, and so there, there are, you know, defining features of science that, you know, that people have to accept in order to play on the, the scientific playground. And, and I think likewise with Christianity, there are, you know, core beliefs or central beliefs that, that someone, you know, needs to accept, uh, to be, you know, to be rightfully called, you know, an Orthodox Christian. So those are essentially the, the, 
you know, the, the convictions that, that everybody within a Christian community would agree upon. Um, but then, you know, in the non-essentials, there's, there's a lot of freedom to explore, you know, different options, just like within science, there's a lot of freedom. So, you know, um, you know, I don't know that science would have, you know, the, the idea of conversion as part of, you know, the, the scientific enterprise. And clearly that's very much part of, of Christianity is, is conversion. But, but the conversion, at least for me as a Christian, my motivation for seeking to, to convert people is, is, uh, really, you know, with their best interest in mind that, you know, I believe that the gospel is true and that, you know, what I'm trying to do is introduce people to the gospel and to the, the person of Christ. Where I would argue that if there is a conversion that happens, it's not my doing, but it really is uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. So that may be a place where science and Christianity depart. But, you know, I do see dogma in science, uh, at least me- at a methodological level. Okay. Well, um, and then la- last question. You keep talking about freedom. Uh, that is the last thing I felt when I was a Christian is freedom. Um, so. What would you say in general to someone, whether they're in science or Christianity or anywhere in life, and they are taking note that they are not experiencing freedom? You know, I'm highly sympathetic to your your experience, and I've known a number of Christians who uh, were in situations where it was manipulative, it was abusive, where there where there wasn't freedom, and to me, I think that's tragic because. I, I do see a, a freedom in Christianity that is, you know, is beautiful. And, and, but yet I've been in circumstances where I felt those, those types of constraints, maybe not to the way that you did. And so those are, are, those are situations or circumstances that I would push back against or that I would just simply, uh, you know, avoid. And not becoming, not become part of that particular uh, community, but but I I have seen uh, you know some of the the worst in people under the banner of the Christian faith, and I think that's absolutely tragic. Uh, and the in the the impact that that has on people's lives is devastating. So uh, I'm I'm highly sympathetic and and very sorry for 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 the experience that you you've had. Um, it, 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 it personally, it grieves me to, when people tell me that, because what I see in the gospel is this, this freedom that is, that is connected to the gospel, you know, um, where the apostle Paul talks about, you know, the, the law versus the spirit, you know, and that, that in the spirit, there's this, this freedom to operate, you know, uh, in a way that, um, that is, you know, pleasing to God, I guess. And that is the ultimate expression of, of Christianity is that operating with that, that freedom because you're operating by the spirit. Gotcha. Well, um, I will say that, uh, don't grieve me too much cause I'm pretty happy now. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, I do appreciate the sympathy wholeheartedly. Um, but I, I promise you, I, I do feel very free now. Um, and it is a good feeling. 
thank you so much for coming on. Can you can you plug whatever you need to plug books where you want where people can go to find out more about you all that good stuff? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if if people want to know more about uh, our, our brand of uh, old earth creationism and some of the ideas that we hold, uh, the best place to go is our website reasons.org. And there's just a ton of articles and videos and things like that where people can, you know, sample again our our views on questions of science and faith for for no cost. Uh, so that would be, you know, a place that, that people could go. Um, just had a book published called Fit for a Purpose, where I look at the idea of fine tuning in biochemical systems. It's uh, as part of a kind of the overarching design argument that I've been working on, you know, the last couple of decades. So if people want to uh, see my latest work, that would be one place to go. Awesome. Dr. Ron, thank you so much for coming on. I, it really does mean a lot to me. And I appreciate the the um, respect we're able to express towards each other and the conversation we were able to have. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I, I'm, I'm honored that you would invite me on your, your program and, and uh, uh, looking forward to, to, to interacting with you in the future if, if that is in the cards. <laughs> oh, it's in the cards. I'm absolutely open to that. that that'd be awesome. Um, so yeah, thank you a lot. And thank you, listener, for stopping by. If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to thecultofchristianity.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider subscribing for additional content. For only five bucks a month, you'll have access to two additional shows, Parsing Propaganda, where I review and critique Christian content, and Art, where we try some amateur religious trauma therapy. Every subscriber becomes a part of something bigger than this podcast as we endeavor to hold churches accountable, speak the truth boldly, and most importantly, love others despite our pain. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul. 